The strike two pitch to Grenier hit high in the air to left with the wind blowing out. Back goes Cabrera on its way. So long. Grenier hits it out. We're a super tight team, like like a legitimate family and everyone's brothers. And I think that made us so much better. And like with all the talent we had, you can't just win with talent. One of the great work ethics and characters of all time, as far as I'm concerned, belongs to head coach Pat Casey. Just seemed like he was always one step ahead of everyone. I think Case is pretty much wearing it on his sleeve. I don't think he cares at all how he's perceived. You know, you were getting the real guy. In the world that we live in, you got a camera on you when you have a position like Pat has. And, you know, he just never cared. Last week on this podcast, we led off with Kyle Novak and the story of his volatile relationship with Pat Casey. When I first heard Kyle tell the story, I was enthralled with how Novak initially buckled under Pat's aggressive coaching, but then rose to the occasion and became stronger than he ever was before. But after some reflection, I had a lingering question. I couldn't figure out one part of the story, so I just had to go back to Kyle and ask him firsthand. I understood that Kyle Novak could handle harsh coaching because Kyle himself is intense just like Pat Casey. But that left me wondering, if Kyle Novak was intense from the beginning, wouldn't that also mean he wouldn't need intense coaching? I mean, he's already motivated, so it's not like Pat Casey had to get him to try hard. He's already a try hard. So what was it exactly that Kyle Novak lacked? That's a, a great question. I think what it comes down to is, yeah, I had that fire, sure. But Case made me aware that there was another person inside of me. So Kyle Novak's fiery demeanor was a good start, but Pat Casey knew that was merely the clay to build with, not the finished product. He's going to have to understand it. He's going to have to grow up and develop emotionally, take that energy, take that fight, take that competitiveness, and, and learn how to channel it so that it can become productive because he had a lot of talent. I got to the point where, you know, I had created this person that when we stepped between the white lines, it was different. Like, I was totally dialed into what I was doing. I didn't have that it factor before. You know, obviously it wasn't every single game that I was this unbelievable player, but he had awakened that person inside of me and made me work harder for something than I ever had in my life. This is Dynasty in the Woods, the story of Beaver baseball. I'm your host, Josh Warden. Today, we'll be discussing more stories from players on the 2018 Oregon State baseball team that each had something in common. Similar to Kyle Novak, these players had something within themselves they didn't even know about. With elements of self-esteem, personal drive, and how Pat Casey instilled courage in his players, this is episode two, The Law of Success. You look at USC, they're getting first, second round picks going there. But he gets guys that develop, they cultivate, and they get the most out of the talent coming through there. Some of these local kids were just gems. Guys he recruited that people didn't really think would play college baseball turned out to be terrific players. And he had a good eye for that. He had a good eye for picking players. You know, I have the best head coach in the country that believes in me, and I got the best pitching coach in the country that believes in me. I got the best team behind me that believes in me. And so it was just me that needed to believe in me. There's laws of gravity. There's laws of buoyancy. There's laws of success. They're fundamental truths. This is what I've learned about success. It's like me holding my phone right now. If I drop my phone, the law of gravity tells me that that phone is going to hit the table. The law of success tells me desire 
backed by a belief system that I can actually do it. That is how you have success. The equation of success comes down to two things, drive backed by belief. There's something reassuring about math equations. It's the simplicity and black and white truth amidst a world of chaos and gray area that can be comforting. If there's a law of success, a sort of equation that shows what leads to success, as Kyle Novak believes, it's that those who have an innate desire to accomplish something, combined with a belief that they can actually do it, then good things will happen. For instance, take one of Oregon State's infielders in 2018. Andy Armstrong. You know, here's the guy playing behind Nick Madrigal and Caden Grinier. He helped them become better because the little guy thought he could really, really play, and he really, really stuck his nose in there. Andy Armstrong was the utility man, do-it-all infielder for the 2018 squad, and he succeeded because, as Pat Casey puts it, he believed he could. I told Andy about that comment you just heard from Pat Casey. It feels really good to hear that because Coach Casey isn't necessarily going to come up to you in the season and tell you something like that. So I didn't know that's how it felt. But, you know, on the inside, that's exactly what I was trying to do because, for one, I wanted to get in there and I wanted to play and contribute to the team. And two, you know, obviously that's another factor of it is it, it brings everyone else's game up too. Andy Armstrong's game did bring everyone else up. In 2018, Andy didn't expect to be an everyday player since being an infielder meant the guys in front of him were the likes of first-round draft picks Nick Madrigal and Caden Grenier. Turns out, expectations were at least partially wrong. The Beavers are not here, quite frankly, unless he did the job he did for the 26 games that Nick Madrigal was out. The Beavers went 20-6 and with Nick out, with Andy playing at second base, and I thought Andy did a tremendous job. Nick Mandrigal broke his wrist partway through the year, and Andy Armstrong filled in capably, more than capably, confidently. And that's the key. Motivation plus belief. That equals success. Andy fulfilled that. But today, we're not just talking about the Andy Armstrongs of the world. We're talking about the people who lacked one side of the equation, specifically the second element, belief. You might think most Division I baseball players would almost certainly have a strong sense of belief in their own abilities. Otherwise, how did they get this far? At least, that's what I thought. I was wrong. Dead wrong. I just compared myself to everybody else, you know? Like, I came into this class with Nick, Caden, Trev, Femme. I was trying to be like, okay, how do I hit bombs like Trev? How do I make plays like Nick and Caden? Arriving at Oregon State along with a talent-laden recruiting class was stressful for Stephen Kwan. Kwan, had the motivation to succeed at the highest level, but comparing himself to his teammates led to anxiety that he wasn't as good as everyone else around him. When he didn't get a lot of playing time early on, Quan figured it was probably his own talents that were to blame. Am I not playing because I'm not hitting well? Am I not playing because like I'm just not strong enough? Pat Casey knew the issue was something more internal. He was a hard-working, humble guy, but he just he didn't really believe it. Going into my sophomore year, I asked Coach Casey, like, what is it going to take for me to play this year? I thought he was going to tell me something like, oh, you need to hit better, you need to bunt better, you need to be faster, something like skill-wise. He had this dumbfounded look on his face, and he was just like, what do you mean? You want me to tell you what's going to get you to play? Like, no, you need to believe in yourself. Like, you got the tools, but if you don't believe in yourself, then I can't tell you anything. I told Kwani, I said, just think how good you could be if you're as good as I think you're going to be. I stepped out of that meeting thinking, like, no, that can't be it. Like, that's not right. 
Quan reconsidered his assessment, though, not just because of the words Case used, but the emotion behind them. It was just the way he delivered it. Like, he was so shocked, I think, that I asked that. He's like, is this kid serious? Like, he thinks he can't play? And I was so taken aback. I was like, wow, I mean, he's right. And that was so profound and so simple. Pat Casey encouraging him along the way to, to be the best he could be. Kwani had his own self-doubt about that early in his career. And look at him now. I was just too busy comparing myself to other people that I just didn't look down at my own feet. I'm like, hey, man, like, this is all you're working with. You're working with five foot and eight inches of meat here. Like, what are you going to do with it? Remember, the equation is motivation plus belief equals success. What does it look like to have motivation but not belief? I think it looks like Stephen Kwan. His willingness to go to Pat Casey to ask about playing time shows his drive but his constant comparisons with everyone else showed his lack of self-confidence. He had one part of the equation, but not the other. Once he connected the two of them, he was off to the races. Kwani became a first-team all-conference center fielder, the Beavers' leadoff hitter, and a fifth-round draft pick. Just one of the great stories of development among many, but certainly his. That advice Casey had given him sophomore year stuck with Kwani the rest of his career, even two years later when that story came up again before one of the final games Kwan played at Oregon State. Two or three hours before the game, we're just kind of walking around, and Case is walking from the bullpen into the dugout, and I'm walking from the dugout to the bullpen, and Case stopped me, and I'll never forget this. Case goes, he goes, hey, Kwani, you remember that time uh, you walked to my office and uh, you asked me what you need to do to play? And I was like, of course, coach, I remember that. And he goes, look how far you come, you know? We're going to win this thing. And he just walked off. And I was just like, Whoa. just a profound man, bone chilling, like right down the spine. And here's the thing, Stephen Kwan is not at all the only player who struggled with something like this. I was playing third base every day, hitting probably like a buck 70 or whatever. Michael Gretler is being hard on himself. He's talking about his freshman year in 2015. He says he was hitting a buck 70, but really his batting average wasn't quite that bad. It was 171. Okay, okay, that's basically the same thing. And no, it's not great. Similar to Stephen Kwan, Michael Gretler had his epiphany in a conversation with Pat Casey. It was a Sunday day game before USC, maybe. Case called me into the coach's office before the game on Sunday, and you know we watched some video and whatnot. At the time, K.J. Harrison was the heavy hitter for OSU with about twice as many RBIs as any other player. And he paused the video and said, you know, if I had to ask you something right now, who's the best hitter on the team, what would your answer be? And, I mean, I immediately said K.J. because he had, you know, 10 home runs at the time or whatever. Case kind of nodded his head, and then he just said, well, like, why wouldn't you say yourself? And that's when, like, the light bulb went off for me is, like, if you don't approach not only an at-bat or a game or a season, but also just life. Like, if you don't approach it with the confidence that you're the best at whatever you're doing, then you're not going to be as successful as you can be. The thing I love about this story, leadership in this scenario was not Pat Casey lecturing, but asking a question, letting Gretler process the answer and internalize it himself. And by the way, after Michael Gretler's freshman season batting a buck 71, his average doubled the next season, and he hit over 300 in each of his three remaining years. Trevor obviously had the body. He could have gotten drafted. He probably wouldn't have been at Oregon State if he didn't have an arm injury coming in. 
Trevor Larnick had the tools to be a great college player, but early on at OSU, he couldn't really find a rhythm. Here's a guy that when he was a freshman was hitting under 200 and wondering if he could ever play the game. His freshman year, I just think he thought a lot. He was very passive at the plate. I think Trevor Larnick hit 143 his freshman year. And I told Mike Parker, this guy's going to put up Michael Conforto numbers. And he goes, guy grounds in a double play about every other day. I said, I know him, but he's going to, he's going to mature. This guy's going to put up Michael Conforto numbers. Trevor Larnick's growth and the trust that Pat Casey had in him reminded me of how Pat talked about another player who helped the Beavers win the national championship in 2006 was Cole Gillespie. Mike Parker started broadcasting Oregon State baseball games in 1999, so Mike was there in 2004 when West Lynn's own Cole Gillespie was a freshman. Gillespie was not turning heads at that point, but Pat Casey wouldn't stop talking about the kid. When Cole was hardly playing, Pat would always say to me something like, Gillespie is going to hit for us. Gillespie is going to be a very good hitter. He's going to hit for us. I'd see Cole get into a game, roll over, or strike out, and think, well, Pat must see something a little bit more than, than I'm seeing. Apparently, there was something more to see because Gillespie became conference co-player of the year two seasons later on that national championship team and went on to play in the major leagues. A dozen years after Gillespie was still languishing on the bench in 2004, another Oregon State outfielder was having a similar freshman season where it seemed the only person who knew what was to come was Pat Casey. I remember Pat using the same kind of phrase that Trevor's going to be a big hitter in this program. He's going to hit for us. And so when Larnick got off to a bit of a slow start, I always kept in the back of my mind the example of Cole Gillespie. Just like Gillespie, Larnick proved Pat Casey right. From Larnick's freshman year to his junior year, his batting average more than doubled, his slugging percentage almost quadrupled, and he hit home runs four times more often. Larnick later became a first-round draft pick. And it wasn't just that Pat Casey helped Trevor Larnick with his swing or anything technical, although that was part of it. It was also the element of Pat Casey believing Larnick would succeed and that becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. The confidence that Coach Casey had an uncanny knack for instilling in players such as Gillespie and Larnick helped both of those guys achieve an amazingly high level. Stories like these make Pat Casey sound pretty uplifting and inspirational. But before you forget how vigorous and intense Pat Casey could be, take this next story with one of the pitchers on the 2018 squad. Early on in my freshman year, I kind of had no idea what I was going to be doing on that team if I was going to be pitching at all. You know, coming into teams like that when you've got Drew Rasmussen, Femmel, Heimlich, all these guys who are All-Americans. Jake Mulholland was a freshman pitcher in 2017, a roster that went 56-6. and six. I didn't know if I truly belonged there right away as a freshman. But over time, Jake Mulholland showed enough talent to earn the role as the closing pitcher. And then I kind of got into that closer role and just was finding ways to get guys out. His freshman year was going fairly smoothly, but baseball is not a game that allows you to cruise unimpeded for too long. We were playing at home against USC, probably my first bad outing. I think we were up by one or two, and I just blew the game. In the 10th inning, Mulholland gave up three hits and a walk. And we lost. And I was, I was pretty bummed because I was like my first time kind of getting kicked in the butt. Mulholland's 5-0 record was finally blemished. 
As a team, the loss stuck out like a sore thumb because in a 26-game stretch near the end of the season, this was the only loss. So Jake Mulholland was not feeling too great about it. And that's where Pat Casey comes in. And then the next morning I get a text from Case and it says, come into my office. I walk in and the TV's already paused off my pitch where the guy's about to hit a double off the top of the wall. And he goes, you see this? And he just points to the TV and he goes, what the hell is that? And I'm, and I'm like, uh, it's a fastball. He goes, no, you just threw a ball 88 miles right down the middle. What do you expect him to do? And just, I mean, a lot of, a lot of other words were said that shouldn't be repeated. Pat Casey ripped into Jake Mulholland. He did not hold back. But the message he was sending wasn't about just telling Jake how bad he was. He uh, basically immediately let me know that they needed me. It wasn't like a negative thing. He was saying like, you're better than this. I know you're better than this, so prove it. Since Mulholland realized Case was actually giving him a vote of confidence, Molly walked out of that meeting feeling not insulted, but inspired. I was like, I'm going to not let someone else be upset with how I'm playing. I'm going to I'm going to take it in my own hands. And so that gave me a ton of confidence. Jake Mulholland ultimately got a confidence boost from the harsher form of coaching, and he also experienced the other type of Pat Casey's leadership. Makes me think immediately of actually my sophomore year in Omaha. We were playing Mississippi State and I was closing that game. Jake Mulholland knows what it's like to blow a game in the last inning. And here on national television, it looked like he was going to do it again. I got two outs real quick and then uh, I ended up like getting a guy 0-2 and I like hit him. And then I think I might have walked another guy and gave up a single. He just kind of missed a little bit, walked a guy, and then missed the, you know, the slider, hit the kid, and the base hit. It got to the point where there was two outs, bases were loaded, the winning run was up. Pitching coach sent a guy down to the bullpen to go warm up, you know, thinking Jake might need some relief here. I honestly thought the same thing was going to happen because I'm out there and I was kind of getting ready to get pulled. And Case wouldn't let me get pulled. On the biggest stage of college baseball, a pitcher who might blow a four-run lead and end the season, and Pat Casey staunchly refuses to take him out. I just said, hey, we're gonna, we're, he's either gonna finish one way or the other. So why would Pat Casey say that? According to Jake, that reason had to do with the confidence Pat Casey had in him and reminding Jake to see in himself what Pat Casey already saw. He said, I needed to basically go through that, and he knew that we would win that game. So he told me that afterward, and it was unbelievable. He had, he had the most amount of confidence in me than anyone in that stadium, anyone on TV watching, you know. It was uh, pretty cool to know that from someone like him. So did Jake Mulholland end up getting that final out and winning, or did he blow the save? Well. You'll just have to listen to the rest of the series to find out when a few episodes from now, we'll relive all these big moments from 2018. But here's the big idea. Time and time again, Pat Casey saw something in his players they didn't see in themselves. That's what Pat and his coaching staff have been preaching since day one. We expect guys to make the most out of their God-given talent. We expect them to do things that they didn't even think they could do. 
you have to believe in them before they're ever going to believe in you. And it's hard for someone to imagine that someone's going to trust you if you don't trust them. They just expected a lot more out of me and what I was capable of that I didn't realize at the time I was capable of. Players like Ben Wetzler had this experience too, even if it took a while to set in. Because I always tell people, I walked in there and I couldn't stand Casey. I wanted to fight Yeski all the time my freshman year. And by the end, it's like I would go to war with both of those guys in my corner 10 times out of 10. Pat Casey employed this idea all the time. If a player isn't believing in themselves and that's why they're struggling, you believe in them first and they just might come around to agree with you. Even Jack Riley, the coach for 22 years leading up to the Pat Casey era, had a similar philosophy. Well, I don't know if I can play at Oregon State. I've told a lot of them, I mean, the baseball doesn't care, and I think you can. And so then you see how they react and go from there. I don't think a ton of people know, but Case really, really pushed me from a mental standpoint. Zach Taylor didn't play much his first two seasons at Oregon State, but a spot in the lineup opened his junior year in 2018. Pat Casey didn't just expect Zach Taylor to fill that spot. In fact, he demanded it. The best thing I can say about Case is he believed in me more than I believed in myself at one point, but really got me to play at a high level that at one point, I don't think early in that season that I might not have been able to get to without his help, you know? And he also knew kind of what made me tick as a player and that he could really ride me, but I would respond. Zach did respond, batting 274 that year, one of the better nine-hole hitters you'll see around the conference. When Zach was sharing the story, and when I hear players talking about how they didn't believe in themselves, I couldn't help wondering, why is this so common? Why do so many Division I athletes think they're not good enough? Many of them were high school superstars. They were highly recruited, or at least good enough to play for a big-time program like Oregon State. So what's the issue here? For me, I think it was, I almost made it bigger than it was. It was almost like, you know, I've always, as a little kid, it's like I've wanted to play for the Beavs. And then finally you get that moment, you put the jersey on, you make it bigger, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm playing against Washington, or, you know, I'm playing against some other school, some SEC school. But at the end of the day, it's still baseball. It's still the same game we've always played. It's just you're wearing a different uniform, you might be on a different stage. But at the same time, it's, you know, the fundamentals and everything is still the same about the game. And I think Coach Casey really made me realize that. Zach Taylor's story isn't the only answer to this. Stephen Kwan, for instance, struggled with comparing himself to other players, and I'm sure each player has a slightly different story. But the point is that it's common for players to struggle with this, and when they do, it's extremely difficult to succeed, which makes it that much more significant to hear all the Pat Casey stories of pushing players to the edge and sometimes messing with their self-confidence, since we're seeing how critical it is to have a strong belief in yourself. It can be frustrating, like, hey, these kids were really good. They came in feeling like, you know, hey, they're a part of this. And then you kind of put the smack down on them a little bit and you humble them. And, and it's like, why are we doing that? Like, he was really good. He's coming in. We want him to be good, but we're going to challenge him to the point where he's scared to come to practice. Uh, you know, I, I think that goes two ways. This is former assistant coach Andy Jenkins, who sometimes worried the players were getting it too rough. There's kind of this sophomore year thing I always thought about with Case or even sometimes your junior year that you really battle through that almost to the point where you can't do anything right or, you know, you just don't feel you're a part of the team and then you rip through that threshold and then you're a dude and he thinks you're a dude and it's because of the challenges that we put you through. In Pat Casey's mind, it comes down to evaluating how good a player can be 
and not letting them waste any ounce of that potential. I like a lot of people that look at our team, how we play, and say, oh, Coach Casey must be just really hard to play for, really a tyrant and everything else, and I laugh about that. I'm easy to play for, but I have difficult expectations to meet, and that's what makes in my opinion, makes those guys understand how much I care about them. If I had low expectations for you, man, you came to the wrong place. You're going to be average. If I have expectations that you don't think you can meet and you leave and you met them, then you should be happy. And so easy to play for, hard to please. You know, that's a good thing, in my opinion. This podcast series supports local and international charities, including Children's Garden, which is located in the Philippines. Children's Garden is a small operation, just a single home that provides housing for about a dozen teenagers who are living on the street. By providing a home, education, tutoring, and other resources, Children's Garden is changing lives. Please learn more at childrensgarden.ph. That's childrensgarden.ph. I'm just glad that I can be the small town kid that started super, super small, always the doubted one from humble, humble starts and work all the way up to something like that. For all the stories you've heard about players dealing with confidence issues, there's a counterpart narrative for at least one or two of the 2018 OSU players. Instead of the star player coming in, struggling with self-doubt and needing a prodigious breakthrough of some sort, there's the flip side of a little-known player without much recruiting interest who comes in with much more self-confidence than the number one recruit. I feel like I always had that high level of confidence because I, I had to. Dylan Pierce fits this mold well. He wasn't recruited out of high school basically at all, and his best option was junior college. After pitching for two years at Southwestern Oregon Community College, he still had almost no options. But he did get a phone number for Oregon State assistant coach Pat Bailey. He asked me, he's like, could you throw a, a bullpen and like film it on your phone and send it to me or something? And I was like, Sure. So I it was wintertime, freezing cold. We went to a small little building and I threw a small bullpen. I had my dad film it on my phone and I just took that clip and sent it to him. Basically, the best hope Dylan Pierce had of playing D1 baseball was a cell phone video of him pitching. And it worked. He was like, it's up to you. He's like, we don't have anything for you. We're not going to be able to give you a scholarship, but we will have you as a preferred walk-on if you want to try and walk on. Pat Bailey remembers that cell phone video. I had a really good breaking ball and... I mean, he's an in-state guy, so it was cheaper for him to come. I'm really uh, thankful that he did because he is a great young man. Once Dylan Pierce arrived, though, he was pretty much the last guy on the pecking order. When I came showing up and they were like, who's this dude? Is this like an on-field, you know, coach or something? Like, they, you know, they didn't know who I was. They had no idea that I was even a player. You'd think if many star players deal with uncertainty or self-doubt, a five-foot-nine walk-on who barely got recruited out of junior college would certainly have those same issues too, if not more so, right? Not necessarily. If nobody else believes in you and nobody else is confident in you, you have to be. And that was something that I never let go. Many of the star players who commanded all the recruiting interest have heard their whole life that they're going to do great things. Some of them get to college and worry for the first time, what if I can't make it? Dylan Pierce didn't have to wonder if he might not make it. He'd already heard that message from others his whole life, so he was used to it. 
the way that I grew up, essentially the smallest person on my team, you know, throughout my entire life, there was always some sort of doubt, you know, ah, he's, he's not going to be good enough. You know, yeah, he, he may have had a decent game, but he's not going to be good enough. Dylan had spent so much time trying to prove others wrong, he had convinced himself he was capable. That's one reason why he had a substantial amount of confidence. Another reason, Dylan didn't have the safety net that many of the high-ranked recruits had. If they floundered a bit, all the coaches know they've got potential, so the player will probably get some extra time to prove himself. Dylan Pierce barely got a walk-on spot. His leash is too short to waste time with self-doubt or timidity. I knew if this, you know, outing is bad or if this happens, you may not get another chance. For the record, I don't think Oregon State coaches gave special treatment to the higher-ranked recruits. If anything, they focused on doing the opposite of that. But it's also true that if Dylan Pierce did not perform well, the coaches wouldn't play him. So he had to be confident. And it's not just the star players who deal with hesitancy and fear. Even the players we talked about earlier were at various points on the spectrum from star player to bench warmer. Self-doubt can happen to anybody, and so can self-confidence. But oftentimes, players like Dylan Pierce are more confident because of their perceived lack of potential. And within Oregon State's program, as we'll see next, it seems there's always been a habit of finding guys like Dylan Pierce, players who weren't expected to be major contributors or even make the team at all, but they brought a certain level of moxie and assertiveness that made the team better. I saw it as like a pipe dream that was very unlikely. All right, no, you're five foot six. Let's get real here. Max Gordon didn't think playing for Oregon State was a realistic possibility. Similar to Jack Anderson and Dylan Pierce, he's an Oregon kid coming from Ashland. He was a good player in the high school ranks, but it didn't seem like D1 baseball was in his future. And that was before he got in a car accident his senior year. Max was in a coma for 10 days and he was told he would never play contact sports again. Just four months after his coma, Max Gordon won a state championship with Ashland High School. He went on to play at a junior college in California. Oregon State was still not on the radar, especially once Max left his junior college and moved back to Ashland. I was mowing lawns for the high school maintenance department. At that point, Max decided not to give up on his dream of playing for OSU, even if it was a pipe dream, and so he texted his old high school buddy, Sam Gavilio, who had gone on to pitch for Oregon State. Max Gordon had just one request, Pat Casey's phone number. So he shot it over to me, and I called Case, and he picked up, and I didn't expect him to pick up. I was like planning out my voicemail, and uh, I just, panicked and I said, you know, like, hey, this is Max Gordon. Um, I want to come talk to you. It would have been easy for Pat Casey to blow him off, but Pat didn't do that. He agreed to talk with Max, so Max drove about four hours north to Corvallis. And so I just got in my car and started driving and uh, got up there, banged on his door and talked for like three hours. Uh, at the end of the day, I, I left there with, you know, the coaches saying like, so you're going to be here in the fall for the tryout? I was like, cool. And yeah, I just kind of wanted to say hi you know i like didn't expect that long story short max became the primary center fielder on oregon state's 2013 college world series team and five years later who was the starting center fielder in the national championship game a walk-on jack anderson and the starting left fielder another walk-on kyle Novak. the story just keeps on repeating itself 
And sure, Oregon State isn't the only program to utilize walk-ons, that's just part of college baseball. But you'd be hard-pressed to find any coach that was as consistent as Pat Casey in taking players who arguably weren't even good enough to make the roster and then shaping them into impact players and winning with them. And give credit to the walk-ons themselves, they had the perseverance to stick it out. And not just the perseverance, the confidence. Before I even started talking to Oregon State, he told me that's the place to go. Andy Armstrong plays infield for Oregon State. His father played for the University of Oregon back in the 60s. Despite being a duck, Rich Armstrong wanted his son Andy to be a beaver. That's where he wanted to see me go just because he knew before I did the culture and the style of baseball that Oregon State is known for. Rich Armstrong valued the team culture at Oregon State. And so far, we've been talking about individual players and their own stories of confidence and reaching their potential. But as much as each independent story of personal growth is important, a truly successful baseball team is more than the sum of its parts. You have this concoction of individuals that need to become a team, but yet they're still individuals. And you have to coach them as individuals, but you also have to coach them and bring them to one. That is the key. What I like to say is four to one, four colon one, four is to one as culture is to talent. Colin Henderson co-authored a book called Culture is King. Evaluating team culture is his area of expertise. And he knows Oregon State too, having competed against the Beavers while playing for Washington State. He first met Pat Casey about two decades ago. Culture is so important. So if we believe in each other, if we believe in ourselves, we have elite culture, we over me, and that's hard in college baseball because all these guys were ballers in high school and only a handful of guys get to play. So that's probably where these guys transfer or they're like cancers. When I think of Coach Case, I think of like just that, that high standard. As Pat Casey would say, it takes talent to win games, but it also takes something much more than talent. You can't take a donkey to the Kentucky Derby. We're all aware of that. But I'm going to tell you, when it comes right down to it, it comes down to the, to the will of the player and not always having the best players, but having the right players, the right people doing the right things at the right time, create a, an environment and a will that they, they breed and feed off of one another. You got to be selfless. If you're not selfless, this is not a culture for you to be in. This isn't about our coaching staff. This isn't about any one single player. And the legacy of this program is this program is more important than, than any individual. Phrases like team culture and chemistry, they can be vague, overused coach speak, but for Oregon State, they played a fundamentally critical role. For instance, in the makeup of the 2018 roster. The up-the-middle combination of Grenier and Madrigal, Pat has said he's never had two guys together like that for three years. Andy Jenkins told me three years ago, he said, you know, Jimmy, the key is just to find a guy, a shortstop. It's like finding a quarterback. You got to find a, we got to find a guy. You just need to get one guy. He said, we got two. <laughs> Pat Casey's two middle infielders were back-to-back -back defensive players of the year in the Pac-12. Nick Madrigal in 2017, Caden Grenier in 2018. They're two of the best hitters in the conference as well. But when they arrived at OSU, they were, in a sense, at odds with each other. They both sign as shortstops with the same team. You'd think, I'm not going to go where he's going right. because I want to play short. Maybe that's a good problem to have if you're Pat Casey. Or maybe it's a catastrophe waiting to happen. Infield coach Andy Jenkins wasn't even sure if they'd get far enough to see either of those outcomes. 
I think we thought there was a great chance that one of them wasn't going to show up. Turns out both of them did show up, but that didn't mean the job was done. Then the question became, which one is going to transfer first? And we bring Grenier and Madrigal in, and I had a scout tell me one of those guys is going to leave because they both want to play shortstop. And I said, well, my job is to make them want to play the game together and become the best they can become. This is probably one of the proudest things as a coach, and Case should feel this way, and the program should feel this way, is the way we manage that whole thing. There was a lot of scouts that, you know, were taking bets on who it was going to be. Pat Casey and Andy Jenkins had their heart set on proving everyone wrong and keeping both players. It just wasn't easy at first to figure out how to do that. It took about a year and then uh, about three weeks into year two. First, Nick played second and Caden played third because Trevor Morrison had a pretty good first two years. And Grenier played third yeah. his first year. Trevor they, Morrison was still short. Exactly, yeah. and Madrigal was at second, and then the two went back and forth. My philosophy in the infield was always, we're going to move around and play positions all the time. The next year is where it got interesting. Coach Jenkins wanted each player to get experience at each position, but by the sophomore year for both Nick Madrigal and Caden Grenier in 2017, it came time to finally make a choice which guy would get to play shortstop. But Pat Casey was reticent about making that decision. Case kept alternating them. But we kind of knew at that point, Nick was a really good second baseman. There's big value. Second baseman handles the ball a lot. Got to the point where Case kept doing it. And I said, Case, man, I'm telling you, these guys are buying in. I don't think Nick cares if he plays second. And I don't think Caden cares. Like, they're, they're creating this bond right now. And then finally, Grenier settled at shortstop, Madrigal at second, and it's been pretty darn good. It did work out great ever since, and looking back on Pat Casey's hesitation to pick one guy or the other, it's pretty understandable why Pat would have wavered for a bit. As Andy Jenkins remembers, lots of top-level players started coming to OSU after the national titles in 2006 and 2007, and it became hard to maintain chemistry when a bunch of guys who were superstars in high school are now vying for playing time. With Madrigal and Grenier, Pat Casey maybe wondered if that storyline was repeating itself. It was just Case very worried about, we gotta make these guys happy. But it got to the point where I think his assistants and our team had to tell him like, these guys are cool now, there's no ego. Nick probably thought he could've played short every day and should've, but I think he knew that we had something special and him wanting to play short wasn't as big as us winning a national championship. They pushed each other, Caden and Nick. They pushed each other, ultra competitive, talented guys. But in the end, I think Nick kind of saw, okay, what's best for the team, Grenier at short, me at second, and, and never muttered or whimpered a word of complaint about it. Even early on in that process, Andy Jenkins was pretty sure that both players would eventually find their niche. He even predicted the one time Nick Madrigal would make a fuss about playing shortstop would be in a prank. I remember telling him, like, watch, at the end of the College World Series when they're juniors, I promise I said this, I go, Nick's going to come in and say, who's playing short today? And that actually happened. According to Jenkins, after two full seasons of Caden at shortstop, Nick at second base, Nick Madrigal did make a practical joke on Pat Casey with a little bit of prodding from Jenkins. Nick hadn't played short all year. I come up to Nick's locker and I go, hey, Casey's in there. He's just sitting down. He's putting his uniform on. I go, go up to him and just look straight face and just go, hey, who's playing short today? By the way, this is all unfolding right before the championship game of the 2018 season, the last time Madrigal and Grenier would ever play at OSU. And at this monumentally important moment, Nick Madrigal was willing to jokingly pretend he was concerned about playing shortstop. 
I told all the coaches that he was coming in to make that happen. And we're all sitting in our lockers and Nick comes in, he goes, hey, I just want to figure it out who's playing short. Case like looked super shook for like three seconds and then everybody started laughing. The whole Grenier Mandrigal saga went from looking like it would never work out to being the basis of a funny locker room prank. Partly that's because of the character, diligence, and humility of Grenier and Mandrigal, but also the team culture that Pat Casey and his staff established that more often than not avoided the pitfalls of players transferring or becoming cancers. I don't think I could coach if I couldn't motivate young men to know that there's more to this than just laying underneath the bar and getting in the cage, you know. The bar meaning the weight, weightlifting. Case had to show his players that coming to Oregon State meant more than hitting an Oregon State's batting cage or weightlifting an Oregon State's gym. It meant being a part of the Oregon State culture. In the end, the team benefited massively from Madrigal and Grenier, and both players became first-round draft picks, having benefited from being pushed by one another. So by not selfishly valuing their own development, they may have actually done the best thing for their own development. Ironic how that works. I've learned so much from coach. It's hard for me to, how much time do you have? Many of these life lessons stick with players not only throughout their college career, but far beyond, including for Ryan Leip, the third baseman for OSU in the late 90s. I think one of the things that really sticks with me is everything matters. Everything matters. He took it to the point of as soon as you step foot on the field, no matter where you are, you better start running, no matter what you're carrying, your bags or anything else. So a lot of people you might see, you know, they get to the ballpark and they're, they're walking to the dugout. He wouldn't let you do that. You know, how you wore your clothes, every single thing, every single pitch mattered, every, everything mattered. This is reminiscent of basketball coach John Wooden, who is famously known to teach his players how to put on their socks because everything down to the smallest detail matters. That concept stayed with Ryan Leip over the last two decades, all the way to his current job as the senior vice president of sales and marketing at a major manufacturing company. That's something that really has always stuck with me. And, you know, I, I preach it. In fact, I had a sales meeting last week and I was preaching the same thing to those guys and said it came from my coach. There's one other element that Ryan Leip developed that's paid dividends in his leadership roles. I almost say it's comparable to what coach's evolution has been like. You know, I'm more empathetic than I was probably right out of school. I was intense, didn't have a lot of patience for folks that didn't have that same type of mentality. You know, even when I started getting into leadership roles, I expected them all to have the same type of intensity and drive that I had. And it's just not, it's unrealistic, you know, and I have a lot more patience about performance. And honestly, it's created more loyalty. People, you know, want to be part of an organization that has leaders that, that treat people that way. Ryan Leip is not the only person who would say something like this. Ryan played on Pat Casey's first ever team at Oregon State. 24 years later, one of the players on Pat Casey's final team at OSU was Kyle Novak. Similar to Ryan Leip, Novak also speaks highly of how Pat Casey's impact lasted beyond his athletic career. In fact, Kyle would journal about things Pat Casey would say at practice or in team meetings, and to this day, Kyle can pull out his phone and scroll through about 40 or 50 quotes he's kept of things Pat Casey said. One of the things that I think he talked about the most was a quote that says, look at your habits and you see your future. This is really what stuck with me with the program is you look at your habits, you see your future. And one of the habits I noticed with Pat is he read a lot. He was very educated. And then our habits as players and how we train directly determine our future. 
what I took from Pat in that program is what are my habits? What am I consistently doing? Because that's bringing me to the future and it's, it's really molding my beliefs and who I am. This has been episode two of Dynasty in the Woods. New episodes come out once a week, which means you won't be able to hear the end of the series for a few months. To find out how to listen to the whole podcast right now, click on the link in the show notes. On the next episode, we go back in time for some Beaver baseball history, reliving Jack Riley's career at OSU and how the program went from thin ice to being something much more stable. Until then, thanks for listening. My name is Josh Warden. Special thanks to Austin Green and Nick Alvey for giving me the idea to do this whole project in the first place. Some audio provided by the Oregon State University Sesquicentennial Oral History Project. Radio broadcast clips used with permission from Learfield IMG College. Have a great day, everyone, and let's talk again next week. Next week.